Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Thank you guys for joining us. If you're joining us virtually, I'm here with a few of our OMIs from the I Believe Seminar here in Nashville. So thank you all of you for joining to just chat a little bit and to you know be vulnerable and be courageous and talk about this. Um, we're going to briefly run through just a few questions. We have kind of a mini panel interview that is in store. Um, so first up, I'm going to have uh, these guys introduce who they are where they're from, and the date of their diagnosis. Um, for them, they're, they're going to be sharing a little bit of specifics around that, just briefly around, you know, where they diagnosed initially in the eye, if they've experienced metastatic, um, metastatic spread at all, and the dates of those, just so that you guys kind of have a, a ballpark idea. So first up. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Mike Stansberry. I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I was first diagnosed in uh, December of 18 uh, with corneal melanoma. I am metastatic stage four. Uh, that took place um, June of 21, and then I've been under clinical trials since then. Okay, and say your name one more time. Sure, Mike Stansberry. Mike, okay, so Mike. Thank you for the mic, Mike. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That was a good one. Um, yeah, thanks. My name is Julie LeBlanc. I am from Vicksburg, Mississippi, but originally from New Orleans, so this is a New Orleans accent, it's not a Mississippi accent. My original primary diagnosis was in September of 2018, and I had radioactive plaque. I had a recurrence in August of 2021 and had a nucleation in September of 2021. Um, at that same time, although I didn't know it, I had metastatic spread to my liver and simultaneously to my brain, um, and I now have it in my spine. And um, that diagnosis officially came in March of 2022, but looking back at the older scans, it was, it was there earlier. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Laura Cunningham. I live in Maple Grove, Minnesota, suburb of Minneapolis. I was diagnosed in June of 2013 with choroidal melanoma. At the time, they did a PET scan, and that also found stage one lung cancer. I had my plaque in July of 2013. I had my left lung removed in August 2013. I metastasized to my liver December 2013. Okay, so thank you. I mean, thank you for being here. And honestly, thank you for just being here too. I, th I think those dates help because dates help us understand if you do have metastatic spread, you're not gone tomorrow. And there is hope. We don't always correlate. We don't understand maybe why, but there is hope. Okay, so last up. Uh, hey, my name is uh, Steve Durant, uh, originally from Massachusetts, but I live in Asheville, North Carolina right now. I was diagnosed in the spring of 2017. 
Um, had plaque bracket therapy in 2017 and some other procedures. Uh, I'm still primary. Um, you know, six, you know, five and a half, six years removed, and still have uh, very good vision in my radiated eye. Wonderful. Okay, so just because there's four of you and five is my lucky number, uh, I am going to go ahead and introduce myself because I've been getting a lot of requests from the community of, okay, we know you're a patient, but like, we don't know anything about you. You just talk about other people all the time. So I will briefly tell you guys, my name is Danae Peterson. I am from Mesa, Arizona, and I was diagnosed in July of 2020 with uh, choroidal melanoma that was treated with brachytherapy by Curly, Dr. Curly. So I am here, uh, and I am just excited to have you guys here to tell us a little bit about some of the things that we experience as patients and just like help, let's like help relate to each other. Um, so if we can p keep the mic over with, um, with you over here, and remind me your name one more time, Steve. So Steve, Mike, Julie, and Laura. Okay. Steve, Mike, Julie, and Laura are here with me, and we're just going to answer a couple questions. So, um, Steve, can you tell us, has your diagnosis kept you from doing anything in life due to, like you mentioned, you have good vision, so has your diagnosis it, limited you? It really you? hasn't. Um, you know, outside of procedures and things like that, and, you know, you know keep, certain, keep time, the mic up. certain time periods, you know, when procedures are done, but, you know, I get injections every four or five weeks, but I don't let them get in the way of life. I just go on with the day. So, uh, yeah, no impact. Okay, Laura, what about you? Nothing. I, I quit working when they said I was stage four. And I honestly, when I first talked to my oncologist, and she said, if I didn't do anything, they'd give me three to six months. So do you want to spend your last few months, years, whatever, collecting child support for other people? No. I wanted to do something for myself. So I, I stopped working. And really, no, I've traveled a lot. My, I do get eye injections. I'm down to every nine weeks now. It used to be every four. I've been doing that for six years. So I'm doing pretty well in that respect. That's wonderful. Thank you, Laura. Julie, what and about I you? I say never oh. say never. Yes, Don't love that. let somebody tell you what you cannot do. All right, Julie. Okay, so tomorrow is the four-year anniversary of my plaque insertion for wow. seven days. I just realized that by looking at Facebook, and it says your memories, and, you know, so I had the details there for that. Um, initially, the what I couldn't do was take pictures with the camera. I used a, a digital SLR camera, so not a point-and-shoot kind of thing where you're looking at a screen and my dominant eye is my left eye so all the problems I had over the last four years and then a nucleation obviously you can't put your camera up to that eye and, and take pictures so photography is something that I've had to learn how to use the other eye but in general even since the metastatic diagnosis I've decided I'm gonna live my best life I've been um, hiking which is difficult to do without depth perception. Yes. Um, but I have very patient friends who will hike with me. Um, I've done whitewater rafting, which is not as hard to do without depth perception. Um, and I will continue to do those things for as long as I am able to. I love it. Thank you so much. Okay, so I guess I'll go real quick, um, just for humor. What has it kept you from doing in life? Well, I can't see on one side. so. I cannot see on one side of my body. That's that's something that I feel the most limited by. Um, 
but other than that, I feel like I've mostly been able to, you know, I mean, I've, I've run, I've run five Ks, I've exercised, uh, my energy level has been maybe a little bit different. And I just for reference, I am, I'm 30. I was diagnosed when I was 28, um, turning 29 or, you know, somewhere around there. But I largely, I don't, I don't feel like I've let the actual treatment get in the way of anything. Um, the things that maybe it's kept me from doing is living with less anxiety. That would be nice, but like, I don't really, I don't get to control that, right? We all are living with so much anxiety day to day, scanxiety, the new treatments, the, the shots, all of the factors that can play into this. And I think that everyone has to find their ways of managing that for sure. So what about you, Mike? Um, like you, I am totally blind in my left eye. So the challenge that I have noticed most is trying to get onto the interstate while driving. It is extremely uh, difficult uh, in that regard. Every time I get onto an interstate, it's a very anxious experience. Uh, loss of uh, depth perception is stumbling, um, you know, not seeing too well. Um, however, um, I refereed college football for 20 years. Um, the irony is that I've been told I couldn't see for a long, long time, and now I really can't uh, see, so there's some things I can't do. Picked up golf, um, competed in the uh, U.S. Turn 50, uh, competed in the U.S. Senior Open as a qualifier, uh, missed the cut, uh, competed at the Tennessee Senior PGA Open, um, uh, finished uh, middle of the pack, so I beat about half the field. Uh, with one eye and they did a real nice job to uh, indicate that in the storyline uh, so learning to play golf with one eye and overcoming depth perception is a is a teachable thing i want to uh, express that that's that's been to everybody's point it's been extremely exciting to be able to say uh, we're not going to slow down and you can't uh, it, it's it's mind over matter so um, it's been a blessing to walk take exercise and engage in those areas so I feel like this is an important point to make, and this is kind of covering into our next question. We all have limitations, right? We've all seen things that this has limited us in doing physically, maybe uh, driving, parking, walking down the stairs, all of these things change because our vision has changed to some degree. And if our vision hasn't changed, there's there's other things that we're now coping with, like mul multiple doctor's appointments, the um, the shots, that are, the frequency of those shots, the scansiety, there's all of these factors, right? So. You guys already started to just naturally touch on this, which I think just tells, tells uh, it's, it's telling to how resilient I think we are as a community. So I just want to point you guys out as uh, models of that. But there are good things that come despite this diagnosis, maybe not because of it, um, in the same way that it's like a, you know, we, we would never wish for this to be a club we're all a part of, right? We, nobody, would, nobody would volunteer and be like, yes, I volunteer for eye cancer starting tomorrow. Like nobody would volunteer for this. And so despite that though, you guys have found ways to, to lean in to the presence and to lean into the joy, to lean into, like you said, to lean into just like muscling through and just finding out like, okay, what am I capable of and how far are my limits? Um, and to just really testing those. So can we just each share one good thing that you feel like has come, you know, despite all obstacles that you've faced so far? Um, Mike, go ahead and go first. Yeah, probably one good thing is uh, my, my family life is very good. It has always been very good. My uh, network of friends that have come to touch and put their hand on me. It's been just unbelievable. I, you know, if you look and I put on sunglasses and we're outside, you just would never know. I don't, 
you know, I have a stage four condition that is very, very serious. And they all think, well, okay, he's fine. Uh, but the friends that do uh, interact and do know me, um, they know how hard this fight is. And, and their grace and kindness and compassion is overwhelming. And um, I would say that's clearly the thing I would notice. Yeah, so I guess another way to phrase this would be, what's a gift that you feel like you've been given despite this diagnosis? What's a gift? Um, and the gift could be people. The gift could be, it could be just the experience. You know, there really is no right or wrong answer here. Um, so uh, I guess I'll go. But one of the gifts that I feel like is, is honestly being able to meet all of you and, um, and being able to just have something to do in, you know, in my profession now as, as a podcast host and to, uh, to really lean into helping empower other people to speak up and to talk about their diagnosis. Um, and also to just, I hope empower you guys as patients, um, with knowledge and to, to just show and to model that, yes, it, it's very intimidating to have this diagnosis. It's very intimidating that there is so little research. There are lots of things that can be very intimidating about that, but that doesn't mean that you're not capable of taking the ram by the horns, so to speak, and writing this out. Um, so I would just say that's, that's been one of my gifts is just that kind of leaning into realizing my strengths and my resiliency. My gift would be kind of weird. Um, so I am kind of a strange and unusual person. So it's allowed me to continue that humor and actually make it, you know, I can, I can wear an eye that looks like I have no eye fall um, purpose no on purpose, and that can be a pirate. Um, so it, it, it's allowed me to kind of engage that humor in the diagnosis, and I think in some ways that makes other people comfortable talking to me about my diagnosis and my prognosis. That's, that's a really weird gift, but I'm weird. I know, I, there's so. no, I mean, there are no rules in cancer. If I have not said that to you, there are no rules in cancer. We get to make up the rules as we go, and I feel like you get to find the gift that works for you. I feel like I have made up the rules as I went along. Make them up. I or like make you, them up. I like eye humor. <laughs> I love eye humor. <laughs> I wear another eye just in case this one goes south. Um, Gifts that I have received are the outpouring of support from close friends and family. And the biggest gift is finding our online support group. I didn't find it until about the time I metastasized. I didn't have it right away. And I, it was doomsday then, but I eventually picked it up and here I am nine years later. Love it. Thank you. All right, Steve. Um, Gift-wise, I mean, real family is probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, wife and children and grandkids and everything has been, been huge. But just the ability to not let not let the, the what's going on overwhelm me. You know, so far so good. But I just don't get stressed. Oh, I don't no, get stressed it. about it. You know, um, you know, keep it keep it light. Keep it keep moving. You know, even to the point. You know, Dr. Reistein is my doctor. He's from New York. He's a big Yankee fan. He's a big Jets fan. I'm from Boston. I'm a Red Sox fan. So we're always jibbing each other. So just in every moment, you know, whether you're going in for, for scans, you know, and that anxiety and joking around with the technicians and just keeping it light, you know, and it just has helped me to, to kind of maintain, you know, and keep, keep going. Just keep going. That's the only way to do it. So 
I love that. And I apologize for being on my phone. I just want to make sure that anyone out in the hallway who's peeking in um, just knows that for the time being, I'm probably going to just have to limit where we are. Um, I think we're going to stick with the five of us in here for now. And then um, just as a, by the way, I think that this format, I like this. And I think that any patients that are willing to do this, that I will, I will do this in the future. I'll, I will try to um, schedule these kinds of interviews in the future for the podcast because I think this has been, been well received at least and people want to participate. It's a little less scary when you're not the only one, I think. You feel a little more supported. So thank you guys for being my guinea pigs and going with the flow here. Um, so let's just touch briefly who or what. Um, this could be up here in sight your doctor, who has been your greatest support throughout your diagnosis so far? Um, and I know that may be kind of a loaded question, but if you could pick maybe the, the person or the type of people in your life that you've leaned into the most, and we can start with you again. Just choke up on the mic a lot. Yep, sure. Uh, I mean, lean into his family, but then my doctor also, Dr. Einstein, has just been amazing from the first moment I met him. Um, supportive, you know, sharing, you know, discussing, you know, so I think the two of those. Would be, would be the biggest. Wonderful. All right. And Laura? I would say probably my sister, who's been to the majority of my appointments with me, has taken time off work to do that, who has driven me down to Mayo Clinic when I'm too nervous to drive, and also my sons that lived with me. Um, they saw the other side when life wasn't all cheery, too, because yeah. I have, for the most part, been a happy camper around other people. Facebook, they don't get to see the other side either. That I don't post, unless it's to my private little group here. No, I think that's a good point. Thank you. So my support has been definitely family. Um, my parents, my husband, my children. I have a grandson too. Um, close friends, either personal friends, my, my work. My office, my, my friends in my office have been very supportive. My supervisor has been very supportive with the time I've needed off. Um, so that, that's something that's important so that I continue to get paid when I am not able to work. Um, and also the, the Facebook and the social, you know, because there's not someone else locally that I know that has this. So you become friends with people that you've never met, and then when you finally get to hug them, like Delinda, um, it's, you already know them, so it, that's it's important. It's like there's, I, I was talking with someone about this yesterday, but it's like there's unsaid things that happen across the virtual space, that when you see someone in person, like at an event like this, um, or at the 5Ks, if you happen to travel for 5Ks, there's just these unsaid things that are suddenly better understood and felt in that hug or that hand squeeze. Like those kinds of things are, they're just, they're such unique, special experiences when you get to meet someone that you've connected with. And, and I have been involved in the Facebook community since before I had my initial diagnosis. So it's something that's been there for me for the last four years. Um, so I think it made the the switch over to I now have metastatic disease a little bit easier for me personally just because there were people I could already reach out to. Yeah, like so. you knew mm -hmm. who was who are the people I can I can talk to. Yep. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you, Julie. So I think for me, yeah, my family, uh, my husband, my sisters, my mom, my uh, my siblings, and I, I thought it was interesting. There was something that was said, uh, I think, in the, the registry talk yesterday about how some of the women who have reported in the registry who have better mental health are the ones who have siblings and sisters that they are close to. Um, so that's been a gift for me is just, just being able to 
to have those relationships. I think, A, the, the gift has been, like you said, leaning into family. It becomes more important. But also just the desire to work on those relationships, even if they maybe have been challenged in the past. The, that desire to heal bridges, so to speak, is, is larger and kind of more prominent and pertinent. Um, but I think that because of that, they have become some of my greatest support as my family and my siblings. In addition to all of, I mean, seriously, all of you guys, like I have a very select few of, of the omis that I really lean into. Um, but I really do appreciate being able to connect with you guys as a community. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think the same thing for me. My wife has just been a tremendous support. But uh, I would go sibling. My brother happens to be uh, in the medical field, so he understands uh, quite a bit more. Uh, I am in a business relationship as well, so my business partner has been with me every step of the way. Uh, and like you, uh, Dr. Reichstein and I have had great uh, uh, times together uh, just uh, as a friend as well as a physician. Um, likewise, uh, Dr. McKean, who works on my metastatic side, um, th these are folks that are very, uh, I I'm 25 hours a month, every month, in, in the hospital for treatment or whatever the case may be. And so you have that relationship of health care that goes beyond um, just a um, kind of a, a clinical, point. that's yeah. correct, they, 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 they tend to treat you a little more like family and then have um, those relationships, so sure. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good point too, is that as you progress through and are seen by these doctors maybe for more than you know one or two years, and they become, they become more like family. Our, our oncologists, our uveal melanoma medical oncologists, and our ocular oncology specialists, like as long as we're sticking with them, right, as long as we're feasibly able to stay local with that person and they don't move on us because that would suck. Um, but, you know, those times when you can develop that relationship, I think, can be very helpful in, in that support aspect. Um, so, Mike, what would you tell someone? Like, let's just, we, we are kind of limited on time. We're down to about the last five minutes. But in, you know, one minute, what would you tell someone who's new to this diagnosis of uh, metastatic disease or I guess you could focus on either one, metastatic or the eye, who, um, to support them or what they should lean into? The, um, the, you, you can't find enough information as, as it pertains to this disease. It is uh, um, innocuous on its initial uh, discussion points. Oh, eye, whatever. They, but it is just an iceberg coming at you, and I would want them to be attuned to the fact that there are support mechanisms, and you need to find mental health support as much as your social circles, as much as your medical circles, because you're going to need all of those in the harmony of, of battling this thing. And the one thing, the one thing I would say is to make maintain a positive and, and good aura about yourself and do those things that bring you joy. Do not do those things that cause you anxiety, and that's the, you're going to have to battle that. I'd give that to life as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Thank you, Mike. Um, and I think that's such, a, that's such a good point, too. So for me, I guess what I would say, I, I would just say if you're someone like me who is very prone to high levels of anxiety and going to the what if, I would say focus on the what ifs of possibility. If your brain naturally veers to, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if it goes wrong? And what if, what if this? What if that? I would say just try to rein it in and to reframe those what ifs. Um, that's something that's really helped me is to reframe and say, okay, what if it goes wrong? And that's, that's my, my initial fear. And then I, I change it and I say, but what if it went better? What if, it, what if it went better than I could possibly imagine? And to kind of use that as a mantra or something to kind of zero in on and to remind myself of going into scans, going into eye appointments, things that are, are resurfacing trauma is just to remind myself there are possibilities here. Possibility um, 
So uncertainty and possibility are kind of the same thing, right? They're, they're both unknown. We don't really know what's possible, but possibility feels better. It's a more positive framed word and it feels better in our brains. Um, so I would say focus on the what ifs of possibility. Okay, when, when we answered the prior question, I forgot to talk about my two sisters. I have two oh, sisters, yes. we're all within a year of each other and they have come to me from, with my treatments and we've made it where I'm taking a nap, they'll go explore Philadelphia because that is where I am, am being treated. Um, so to answer the question of what piece of advice, that initial diagnosis, whether it's primary or METS, um, or met somewhere else, because I've had lots of them, or a recurrence in the eye, is a punch in the gut. Um, but I've always found that you just, you know, you kind of take whatever you need a day. It's usually for me a day or two, and then you kind of gather yourself and say, what am I going to do? How am I going to come up with a plan? And for me, having a plan of treatment, where am I going to go, who am I going to see, um, is comforting for me and it gives me at least a sense of control knowing that I, I know what's coming next. Okay, that's excellent, Julie, thank you. For me, the biggest thing I would say, I learned from an OMI online. I was afraid of, I was going to lose my eye. I had a pretty good sized tumor. I'm already wearing two hearing aids with 70% hearing loss. So, the doctor did not want to enucleate. He said, we'll try. We might have to enucleate later, but we don't want to leave you with one less sense. So the biggest thing I learned was do not borrow worry. Mm, I still I have that. anxiety. That's understandable. You're waiting for the ball to drop. However, the rest of the time, I'm not worrying about it all the time. Yeah, it's like the idea of don't worry twice. That's, that's yep. the what ifs. Basically. The what ifs are always there. But if you sit here and, and stew on them and worry constantly before anything's even happened, nothing's even happened yet. I do this all the time, but that was my mom's advice is don't suffer through worry twice. With my eye, and I was worried about losing it, one of the, one of the omis took her prosthetic out on a, on a video <laughs> and, you if you, and put it in the comments. So if you wanted to watch it, you could. It didn't scare me. It doesn't scare me now. That but was it, it one helped, of my fears, it just to helped either kind face of, it or... Yeah, to face it. Yeah. I love that. Um, I guess my biggest thing for anybody new to this would be just... Oh, pull it again. up. There you go. Pull it pull up. It up. It's okay. Microphone, microphone. Uh, it's is just to not be overwhelmed. It's all about attitude. It's, you know, it's not, not all gloom and doom. Um, you know, I can go, real quick, I can, you know, it wasn't just ocular melanoma for me. I had thyroid cancer in 2000, mm, you know, yeah. prostate cancer in 2002. Thyroid cancer came back with a vengeance in 2010. Then the ocular melanoma in 2017. So it was just like bam, bam, bam. I'm, I'm still standing. I'm still living. I'm still working. You know, well, and, and exactly. like it's proof. And so it's, just, it's like right. personal proof of right. all of these things you've been through. If I can, and, and this right. is, I guess, something else that's helped me is, is what you're saying is this idea of, okay, I've been through this. Right. I've been through A and B and C, and I can I can do this next thing. Right. And, 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 and that's kind of like, I don't know. That's that's all. That's all we can do is just focus on. It's, it's to be cliche. The Frozen movie. Do the next right thing. You just do the next right thing. You figure out the best right thing. And and if you're wrong or if if it doesn't go exactly the way that you hoped, then you pivot. We talked about that in here before we started. Like you have to be willing to pivot and to adjust and to just know that things are always changing. Um, well, I seriously I appreciate all of you guys for being here. I'm gonna go ahead and take the mic back. Um, 
I loved this. This was short and sweet, and I felt like it was very helpful, and I hope that the patients listening online and anybody else who listens to this later finds this um, extremely informative. So let's just say goodbye, and we'll see you guys back in the other room. Goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.